This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 31, part one. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Welcome to the Negotiate X podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me today is Aram. But also, Aram, we have an incredible guest to introduce, and that's Brian Rodriguez. Brian, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast, man. We're excited to talk and talk about real estate and negotiations. No, awesome. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so blessed to be here. Definitely to be with my former professor at West Point in negotiation. So I feel like I'm back in class and ready to take, <laughs> take a, take a WPR. And so a little nervous, but it's more excitement, you know, you're not sweating enough to, to feel like we're really back in class there. Brian. <laughs> I mean, you, Oh, I got bald head. So you can probably see me glistening. And stuff, you know? Well, I'll kick it over to Aram. Aram, if you want to introduce Brian, I know that y'all have a much deeper relationship that goes back. Yeah. Our relationship goes back now over, over a decade, Brian, we're, we're getting it. We're getting old, right? 2009, we're getting ready to launch the West Point Negotiation Project, which has now been around for 13 years. Can you believe that? Amen. Jeff Weiss and myself are launching this endeavor at the encouragement of a lot of different folks who'd been uh, out on deployments that, hey, we need a broader reach to the military in terms of negotiation and influence skills. And so we looked around at the what was called the MG390 course at West Point, uh, Negotiation for Leaders course, and we reached out to the current students and we said, hey, would any of you willing to help us? And we had, I don't know, three, four, maybe five students say, yeah, well, we're willing to take this on. Now, remember, this is primarily second semester firsties. And anyone yeah. who has ever been in the last semester of a four-year program or any sort of program you tell me how much how much energy and excitement do you have to put anything else new on the plate, right? And and that in itself will tell you about Brian and the other his classmates who said, "Yeah, we'll help you out get this thing started." And I've got so many fond memories of you, Brian. I'll I'll, I'll say this as we get ready to just kind of get to talk about where you are and what you're doing. I will say this: what impressed me most was your work ethic. Okay, you you were always willing to outwork the person next to you your willingness to try something new. And if I remember right, were you a, were you a football player? Yes, sir. Yeah. Football player, man. What was your, was your management major as well? Management. It's the best yeah. major. <laughs> and yet, what did we ask you to do as we were launching the project? We asked Brian to create um, a graphic, a logo for the project, which you did, oh, yeah. which you went and did. And that's evolved since then. Okay. But you were the, oh, wow. you created the first one. And then you were also one of our key spokespersons at the uh, the conference that we that we yeah. the, the global leadership conference that we that where we, we kind of launched the the project um, entirely. You were one of the key spokespersons. So those are a couple of memories I have of you. Great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. No, it, it's such a pleasure to hear that. It just demonstrates like leaders give other leaders opportunities to grow, and and that and that's what you did. And I'm always going to be grateful and thankful. I'm going to give you a hundred percent every time you call my name. So thank you. 
Thanks, Brian. Well, if we can kick this off, and, and Brian, so just past the negotiations course, obviously, let's start with your military career. How did negotiations play a factor in the early part of your career just out of school? And then we'll transition into what you're doing today. Yeah. So, you know, I finished West Point in, in 2009, right? And, uh, and I go to the ordnance branch. And so that's a regiment of the multifunctional logistician branch. So first you're assuming that it's going to be just Excel, right? You're just forecasting and doing planning factors. And though it was, I definitely got, I would say, thankfully, I got an array of different experiences. And so literally, like on my first deployment right out the gate in 2010, I was deployed to Kirkuk, Iraq in, in Kurdistan. And what was interesting there is I went as a maintenance platoon leader and literally a week before I got chosen to fall in uh, with my platoon of logisticians uh, to fall into Bravo Company 212 Infantry. And so I had to become a maneuver platoon leader. So immediately right there, you know, you, you're just like, wait a minute, there's immediate concerns here. <laughs> we didn't really train like the infantry guys did for the mission. And all my personnel didn't branch that, right? So the, their motivation isn't there. So, you know, by the grace of God, you know, we did just fine doing like counter idea, rolling QRF, checkpoints, seizing targets, close air squad, I mean, even KLE, right? Key leader engagements. And so there was just plenty of negotiations there, right? And convincing your personnel to do a job that they were not expecting, dealing with a commander that was not your branch and didn't trust you. So there was no relationship there, right? And I could go into depth and stuff, but yeah, I mean, every episode I've been in, it's always been a huge negotiation lesson. You don't really think about it, right? When you're, when you're in the moment, but when you're asked to, to do some critical thinking and uh, reflection, it's all, it was all negotiation. Yeah. So I, I, I got the, you know, I got that privilege and, uh, did an array of things. I even, uh, when I went to Afghanistan, I was able to be the first security force advised assist team. They're known as SFATs. Uh, so I was the first commander and it, one of the first commanders. And it was, uh, it was that we were a guinea pig for the army at the time. And now it's a, you know, full fledged. And I actually had to submit, you know, like our, our negotiations review, uh, back to your, one of your successors about the key leader engagements I've had as an SFAT in, in guiding the Afghan officials, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's been a part of the whole military. And, um, yeah, so yeah, just to answer that. Right, Brian, that's, it's, a, it's a, just a great example of how these skills show up in any different sort of array of situations. As you think about, I mean, in, to encapsulate your military career, anything in particular jump out to you that like, from a negotiation perspective, stays with you today. And, and we'll get to the work that you're doing now. But is there something that kind of stays with you with all the, everything you were talking about before, both with your kind of first deployment and then the second deployment, any sort of you know single principle or idea that hold, hold fast to? No, definitely. Because, you know, all these questions, we, we can go right into all these negotiation, um, you know, deep dives, right? And just to not get ahead of ourselves, I would think relationship and uh, legitimacy. Uh, I think relationship and legitimacy are are, are really decisive, really important uh, in any in any industry, any negotiation that you're in. 
you know, you're always dealing with individuals, with people, uh, their personalities, but you're taking action. And that's whether you're communicating or demonstrating something, uh, you always want to be legitimate as best you can. So those two principles really are consistent. And I'll, and I'll talk about that, obviously, through this. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's start to transition there. Cause, cause we are really, you know, our, our goal, um, well, we'd love to swap more war stories and talk about, we really <laughs> want to talk about what you're doing now. So can you tell us how did you, okay. Wh what was the transition point? When did you transition from, from the military? What's that looked like? And, um, and kind of what's this new field of real estate that you've gotten yourself into? And if you want to yeah. just say you rode your wife's coattails here, <laughs> We all know that's true. So anyways, go ahead. I, I mean, I would say you always have to leverage your resources, right? And 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 your relationships. But, uh, you know, real estate was parallel, you know, with me as a young lieutenant. And it started with Lana. Like I always say, Lana got me into buying real estate and I got her into real estate service. So like sales. And uh, it was funny when I first met her, she was buying her first uh, her first property. And I was like, what are you doing? Parents buy houses, right? And uh, I was just young and immature, <laughs> but she she really got me into that. And it just got the bug while I was in the career uh, to understand how to leverage the VA loan, how to understand how to complement real estate as just another form of revenue, wealth building, so forth. It got to the point where the, the big change was when my wife wanted to grow our family. And she's like, hey, I, I want a kid. And I was like, well, you got to go back to work and you need to be an agent. And so, cause I knew she would do great. And, uh, and like you said, riding the coattails of my wife, I mean, she was just, uh, like incredible. She like a bat out of hell and she did a great job. And I really learned a lot, you know, but at the same time I was trying to be Hua and, and try to reach for the stars. Uh, but the business was pulling, was pulling us out of the army and, you know, the army's tough, right. To, to make it a career and make sure everything works in your favor and you got to give a lot to the army. So I had to call it quits, right? And um, I was a homeless veteran for a little bit. And then I, I, I got into the University of Denver because uh, I really wanted to transition to become more of a professional, to be more legitimate in the eyes of, of people. So I, I, I got a master's of science in real estate, became a broker, and uh, I just complimented my wife and then eventually led into who I am and, and what I've started in real estate. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what what you are like, who who you yeah. who you are, and what you are doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I am a an associate broker. Uh, so that means I'm not a broker who employs agents. But uh, my wife and I are associate brokers, and we own the Lana Rodriguez Group. So that's a residential uh, team. Uh, we do we do commercial. I could talk about that. Um, but we service. I mean, we've been real blessed in servicing families since 2015. We service over 1,200 families and almost half a billion dollars in, in, in just principles, right, in, in selling real estate. So there's a lot of data points there that we've learned over the years. And then I've really leveraged our network, the Black and Gold uh, Summit, I call it. It's a West Point conference for West Pointers by West Pointers. But it's just an example of what I, I always recommend people that, you know, riches are in the niches. And so uh, really focus on on, on who you are. And I really doubled down on our community. And, you know, here in Colorado Springs, I am very, I'm a huge advocate and I really want to change the landscape. That's so awesome. What I'm interested to jump into, Brian, is kind of understanding 
how do we move beyond, or at least, you know, from the outside looking in, how do we move from beyond just a haggle over prices when it comes to real estate? I, mean, I know we had kind of talked a little bit about the principled agent, so maybe we collaborate that in here, but really getting at, you know, can you even understand interest and generate options from an agent's perspective when buying a real estate? Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if we should get into the seven elements of preparation tool, right? You know, you know, sure. Sarah, I had to bring this on stage, right? So this is my notebook uh, of the, the negotiations uh, course that we took. And I have like literally everything in there. You know, I'm going to have to go back and change your grade to an A plus now, Brian. Wow. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I have all the tabs and everything. Can you change a C to an A plus? No, no, no one, you're stuck with the C. <laughs> it's just, just one all right, one dang it. But, uh, you know, so it's interesting because I think we want to dive deeper into into those elements. And And one of the beautiful things about real estate is that there's always a timeline, right? And there's a pre, pre-contract timeline. There's a contract, there's a timeline within the contract. And then there's, you know, a timeline post-closing. And that actually allows us to use that seven element prep tool. It makes it just so much more effective because you you got a foundation to always reference and it just helps get into those interests, options, legitimacy, alternatives, commitments, relationships, and communication. So I, I think we should go down that, right? And so when, when you talk about interest in real estate, and I'm obviously I'm going to be very biased in, in this episode, right? Because I'm talking about real estate from a broker's perspective, servicing their clients. So, so yeah, just, just a disclaimer. But uh, with the interest, you know, so that's the first thing probably everyone thinks about. It's like, wh- what does the buyer and seller want? And I think, I think, I think that's just, you know, kind of like the, the outline or the, the, the cream on top. But the real inside of it is understanding the purpose right? Because you want to make sure you're advising them effectively and understand why they're selling and why they're buying. It's, it's like in the military, it's really like understanding the commander's intent and like, what does that end state look like? And so when you understand that, you definitely can get more creative and really getting into the interest. On the contrary, or like maybe further understanding their interests, I always say, let's chase their objections. You know, in, in negotiations, there's famous book, right? Getting to yes, right? I know, I know you would understand. I, I, I like to put a twist on things and I'm like, well, why don't we chase the objection really understanding why they won't sell or why they won't buy. And usually when you chase the objection, it's more uh, pre, pre-negotiations, like trying to get their business um, so you can provide value to, to, to their interest. And, um, you know, simple examples, right? So for, let's say, uh, a seller, right? A seller doesn't want to pay capital gains tax. So they don't want to sell right now because capital gains tax is based on short and long term. So that, that's a great interest. And you understand that there's a tax implication regarding that interest to not sell. Let's say another seller doesn't want to sell because they don't have a relationship with any of their their people, right? And they're just going to die and go into probate, right? And so you're wondering like, oh, okay, that's why you don't want to say, even that's crazy. But these are actually real life examples. And the more you, you get into their interest and their objections, you really understand your industry and the product that much better. Yeah. So, you know, it's getting to yes, chasing the ob- objection. Uh, so that's, that's interest. So 
Uh, I know I could be long winded, but no, Brian, I, I think that's a great, those are great examples where I think that most folks, when they, when we come up to real estate, it's like, well, obviously they just want to get more. And it's, it sounds like there's when you, when, and I love your, I love your phrase, chase the objection. What a, what a great sort of concept that there's, there's more to it, whether it's around tax implications, whether it's around inheritance or what's going to happen to my state. I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, those are, you're getting into, especially when you talk, start talking about their relationships and inheritance and the state, I mean, that's pretty deep sort of concerns that, that people are bringing to the table. No, without a doubt, sir, you hit it on the nail. I think the next next part of it was options, right? You talked about Nolan. Options are interesting. You know, I always think options are an opportunity to be creative. If you understand the interest and you can derive to options, right? And to me, I think options in real estate are a synonym of concession. Because again, you're going to sell, but you know, there's always how are you going to sell this, right? It's never black and white. So options in real estate, my understanding, are, are more concessions. So you're still trying to reach that decisive interest, right? Hey, I'm going to sell or I'm going to buy, but it's altered on just how you buy it or sell it. And so options in, and let's say selling, right? Uh, if you sell a property, let's say a house, there's probably stuff within the property that the buyer wants, right? So, you know, you're going to reach the interest in, in selling the property, but an option is, hey, we'll sell it with all the real property in the building, right? And so that has a value, that has a value both monetarily and in emotionally and subjectively. Another one, let's say a buyer, right? Typical things in buyer's market is where a buyer will like, hey, I'll buy your house, but you need to pay all my closing costs. So that's, that's a very common. So, or you need a, let's say you go under contract and the buyer wants inspection items to be taken care of, right? So they either fix it or provide a credit. So there's always options. And, and it's crazy that the more juicier the deal, right? The more creative the options can be. Can we ask and uh, put you on the spot here? And I'll give you a simple example, but I'd love to know what your, if you got an example of a time where you were able to get really creative working with a client to, to kind of work a deal, maybe even, I don't know, one, one that was on the verge of not happening, but I'll give you my story real quickly. Just yeah, yeah. Recent, recently purchased, uh, actually in the process of purchasing uh, a rental property and the person that I'm, I'm working, the seller, we had to, we had to just had to slide the closing is what we had to do because of tax implications. Again, we could have gotten really positional around this, but that was important. Right. And, uh, you know, being able to work there, able to, you know, in exchange work some different modifications we wanted done around painting and, and some flooring and stuff. We don't have the time pressure because of the, anyways, they wanted to get out of the, the capital gains window. Uh, mm -hmm. and we, and we wanted some other things done. So just having to be able to have those conversations and then be able to get creative around it. Curious now to come back to you. Cause that wasn't a super creative solution. You've had any opportunity to get real creative at the table, even around real estate? You know, I, I can't recall right now because I always feel like nothing's really creative, right? I feel like I'm just trying to get to the answer. I would say it's, it's just really finding if, you, if, if the buyer, if your client uh, accepts, right, an offer, there's going to be other things they're going to have to accept down the line. And you've got to be able just to adjust fire to each one of those. Mm -hmm. Typical things that I've, I've noticed, let's say in residential, in this market, it, it's, a, it's a seller's market. 
And so sellers, I mean, so buyers are, are literally bottlenecked because there's no supply, high demand, and sellers are controlling it. So there's high price. And it's, it's very hard because the bottleneck holds buyers up into buying a property um, because they're like, they're on a time crunch and they, they need to buy something. And what's been really interesting in residential is I've been purchasing Airbnbs so that I can just fill that void for my clients, right? Because the, the thing is, you, you need to get these buyers to buy. If not, they're just going to take the alternative and that's the rent. And so creatively, in order to sustain that, uh, to keep my buyers in the fight, I've just provided housing. And so that, that, that's been, that, and, and I'm, I'm in, the, I'm in the, uh, the negotiations or the, the due diligence and trying to find a hotel so I can put my clients in there so they can have the, you know, the confidence that they're going to be able to buy in a timely manner. Uh, so that's been, that's been creative, but it, it's, it's really interesting. I, I mean, I just do whatever it takes. And uh, I mean, I just have so many things. I just, I, I don't, I don't, I can't really pin it down, but yeah. uh, I, I always just find a way. Boy, I love, I love that idea that, that feels, you know, you, I know in the pre-call we we're talking in, in preparation, a little bit disrupting the industry, obviously people need a place to live. It puts them under a time pressure if they're moving to find something right away to be able to, and you talked about the, the importance of a timeline. It seems like if you can stretch that out, your opportunity to get your client into the very best place for them improves. So that. That sounds, I like, that's really creative. I, I hadn't heard of that. Maybe that's common in, in the field. I'm just not familiar enough. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely not common because it's an expense, right? It's a, yeah. it's a responsibility at the hold that, you know, yeah. hopefully there's a profit, but it's all about experience at the end for the client, right? Yeah. You know, it creates that relationship. I, I think we're on a roll and I think we keep going down that seven element, right? And really talk about how that seven element applies to, to my field. Um, alternatives. I generally like to stay away from them because I feel that that that's just going towards the deal falling apart. Because once you you start getting away from that decisive interest, like I'm going to buy or sell, I, I just feel like it just turns into something that never was intended. And in real estate, let's say I was going to buy and I can't buy, I'm just going to rent. That's the alternative. And I'm just like, well, now it's a leasing operation and it's it's completely different. Right. Yeah. Or even a seller. Right. When the seller wants to sell their property, but they can't sell it for whatever X reason. So the alternative is like, well, I'm just going to refinance. So I'm going to pull all my equity out and I'm going to you know, have a new principal and then probably not sell because he's already pulled out the equity. He's already at the height. Right. So he's right. got his money. So the alternatives are, are, are stuff that I feel like you, you then start leading to your BATNA. And then that BATNA is what the best alternative and when you get in the BATNA, sure, you guys can tell me if I'm totally wrong, right? But the BATNA for me just is your is your ace up the sleeve for a threat, you yeah. know? And and I just like why why are we getting there? And right. and, and and so because it, then it, then it goes into threats. And so I mean, if you look at it the opposite, you know, alternatives could lead to like keeping the deal alive, right? Because maybe they don't sell now, and then what they do is they lease right? To the other client, to the buyer, and then they just buy later, right? You know? And so there, there's ways to, to, I guess, do a mix of both options and alternatives, but yeah. I, I feel like you, you go down the road to threats. 
Right. Well, that's, that's a common path for alternatives, right? And and I like how alternatives do several things for us, and 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 your management of them, I, I feel, is pretty indicative, right? You're you're talking about how by understanding what the alternative is, you can talk about how gee, that, that alternative doesn't really satisfy your interests as well as continuing down the path of the sale or continuing down the path of a purchase. It also, as we, it is, as it reveals more around interests, helps us go back. And as you just said, I mean, come back and say, well, maybe we don't sell now, but we can lease to you with a plan to purchase down the road, which starts to get to another sort of creative option. So uh, yeah, it's a really, really interesting mix of it. You know, and then again, it's a seller's market. It would seem that Sellers have a lot more alternatives in terms of different buyers they could sell to. Are, are there ways that a buyer that you're seeing buyers distinguish themselves as, as a, a more attractive option versus the other folks that they could sell to? I mean, there are things that are more appealing to potential sellers. Um, I guess we're really talking about kind of residential sales. Maybe, maybe it applies to commercial. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that goes more into communication, right? And how are you communicating that buyer or that seller or the product or the service or the offer, right? Um, yes, that, that is incredibly important. Because if you think about it from, you know, it, it really it, but it depends on the seller. But if let's say the seller is open, right, is more just open to the offers, right? A seller will receive tons of offers. And so how do you really distinguish that offer from, let's say, 50 offers, right? And so there, there's a lot of legitimacy that goes in that and really underwriting what that price is and then providing terms, right? And the terms would have to satisfy the seller, but don't jeopardize the buyer either, right? Because, you know, seller's market is tough. It is tough. The buyers are, you know, becoming exhausted and they feel like they're giving everything. So, yeah, I mean... That's a great point is like, how do you, how do you, how do you showcase your client and, and the offer? So right on there. I got a question for you, Brian. So real estate negotiations are obviously multi-party negotiations. So how do you maintain a relationship with the other agent and also representing your client so that, you know, you don't want this just to be a, a single one-time transaction. You want it to be multiple times that y'all are able to work together in the future. So how important is relationships? Like what do you do to make sure that you don't get screwed and you don't screw anyone kind of uh, if, if this is even as important as I think it is? I love that question because one, it's uh, my opinion on the industry and, uh, and it's my opinion in people, right? And so, and, and we cut, and you know, it's how you grew up, right? Is, is how I, I think I'm going to answer that question, man. So let's, let's, I guess, scope it. So with the relationship between agents, right? The buyers and sellers, that's the question, correct? Yep. Okay. So real estate's easy. People are crazy. Like, <laughs> like, let's, like black and white. I'm crazy. You guys may not think you're crazy, but I think we're all crazy. But anyway, uh, it's just to, to just kind of answer that question, black and white, but it's so important. And the other side has to be receptive, right? There's such a, a pride in, in, in sales regardless, right? Whether I'm selling medical devices or I'm selling, you know, construction equipment or whatever the case, you are, you are representing a brand. You're representing yourself. You're representing, you know, high value items, right? And so th there's always this ego that, that's involved. So if mm -hmm. the other party is receptive and willing to, to hear your side, hear your client's side, 
uh, and really learn. You know, I, I, it's funny. I've had so many conversations with other agents. They're like, I'm, I'm interested in being humbled, you know, and then you're just like, okay, that, that's not, that's not, I'm not trying to humble you. I'm just trying for us to come and, and see, see different sides. Right. And, and if they're not willing to do that, you really can't go nowhere. And it just becomes really objective, right? This is the price. You don't satisfy the price or the terms, then, you know, moving on to the next one. And you have such a tight window, right? Especially in residential, it's a lot of frequency, right? Uh, versus commercial, it's not like everyone's buying a, a 500 unit hotel for 25 million to convert, right? So you have a lot more um, window to create that relationship. So it, one, if they're receptive, and two, do they speak that same language, right? Because if they're not at that same level as you, and you just overwhelm them, right? It, it, it's so hard. So you want to make sure you speak their language, because it's still a seller's market. So you don't want to come imposing or, or over overkill, right? And so once you get, once they're receptive and once you get the same language or the same frequency with them, the, the, the tone, then you can get more effective and you can, if they're willing to go back to the seller too. That's, I guess the final part is like, how are they as a, as a professional to go back to their client? Because it, it, remember, you were representing the client and, and the way real estate works is that the seller compensates the agent, uh, both buyer and seller. So you could think about the seller like, wait a minute, you're not working in my interest. Why are you coming back with more terms, right? So those are those three things. It's like, you know, are they receptive? Can you speak this? Can you guys speak the same medium? And and then finally, are how professional are they? But yeah, like uh, I mean, I love this stuff. Uh, just getting into this when you start talking about. I want to go back to the alternatives and leading to threats. And I feel like threats is what makes the drama of of real estate, right? Like I'm not going to buy and I walk, right? You know? It's the only reason I watch yeah. the uh, real estate show. So <laughs> it's, it's funny you said that. Uh, uh, just a random point, Selling Sunset, right? I don't know if you ever seen that Netflix. Yeah. yeah. I think I saw a couple of episodes. Yeah, I yeah. paid my, I paid my, I paid them uh, this thing called Cameo, where they will send a message on their birthday, and I just, I just, yeah, yeah. That, so it was really funny. But anyway, <laughs> I can get on tangents, but like in regards to threats, to me, threats are like really childish, you know. And I feel like if you're gonna get to threats, it's because of a stalemate, and it's because, or, or the parties are just irrational, right? They just become really hostile. And another thing about threats, it's, it's really poker face. And so if you're going to threat, you better move forward because the moment you, you start with your limp command hand, you know, I mean, you're vulnerable. And in, in an experience of I've had is that if you have a threat, make it real. Act and send the message. What also I've learned how to threat, you don't threat like buyer to seller. You threat buyer to atmospheric to like third party vendor. So for example, like when you threat, hey, I don't think that if we don't get this deal done before the end of the year, I don't think I'm gonna be able to buy because one, I'm not gonna reach the 1031 timeline. Uh, the interest rates are gonna go up. The shortage, the labor and material shortages are going up. I won't be able to get the, I can't, I can't buy until I get the job, right? Um, so you wanna threat using someone else or something else. Um, you never want to say like me. D does that make sense? 
Well, yeah, and it also sounds like you're tying it back to two things you've talked about before, which is the interest in legitimacy, right? So the the interests that don't get satisfied, we're tying we're tying that this is why this threat is or this alternative is valid, but also in terms of like we're benchmarking against you know interest rates and other things that are somewhat objective. No, it's right. Um, it's just the threats I've just experienced are just all they take it super personal. Yeah. And so if you could take that person out of it, yeah. oh, it, I think it's so much easier. All right, guys, we're going to have to end it right there. We're going to cover this further in part two that we're going to be playing for you next week. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.